Hello and welcome to The Planet Today. It is Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here as always with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, happy March. Woo! Best month of the year, folks. You got my birthday. You got my grandpa's birthday. You got my girlfriend's birthday. You got... Uh, that's it. My niece's birthday. Your niece's birthday. My other two niece's birthdays who are twins. My sister's boyfriend's birthday. My mom's birthday, which is also my brother's birthday. Nice. So big big month. You know what? Let's just get it all out of the way today. Happy birthday to everyone in case we forget (laughs) to wish you a happy birthday on the show, except for you, Nick, because we're going to release an episode on your birthday since it's a Friday. Oh, yeah. So if if we forget that one, that's that's on us. (laughs) Pretty sick, too, that my birthday's on a Friday this year. Very rare. Very rare. Yeah. So stoked for that. Rare birthday W. (laughs) All right. Uh, I think... That was about as good of a cold open as we could hope for. Let's get into the show. For our quick hits, everybody. So the first one is from fizz.org and it's titled Worst Ever February Rainforest Data for Brazilian Amazon. Last month, we spoke about how Brazil saw its lowest level of Amazon deforestation in a long time, down 61% from the previous January. Just one month later, deforestation has reached its worst ever February level. Surveillance satellites detected 80.6 square miles of forest destroyed, which is 209 square kilometers, or 30,000 football fields. The INPE Space Research Institute's data through February 17th already showed more deforestation than the previous worst February, last year while Jair Bolsonaro was still Brazil's president. Part of this can be attributed to unobserved deforestation in January, which resulted in the appearance of deforestation being lower than it actually was. But still, this is disappointing news. Over the course of Bolsonaro's presidency, deforestation increased 75% compared to the decade prior. So when Lula took office, he announced a goal of zero deforestation by 2030. Last month, we mentioned how the 61% decrease in deforestation was a big win, sounded like great news, but unfortunately, it did not mean that deforestation was trending down just yet. Yeah, so Lula has already begun the process of rebuilding the departments that were cut by former President Bolsonaro, which should help with fighting deforestation. Brazilians are also hoping that international aid to fight deforestation will increase now that Lula is back in office. Germany and Norway have been the main contributors to the Amazon fund. I feel like this is just a lesson in like anytime we get really good um, environmental news, it's important to take it with a grain of salt <laughs> when it comes yeah, to for sure. climate news, because, you know, o- overall, 
It's not like these bad things that have been happening for a long time are happening in a vacuum. And what we saw here is just this trend of deforestation increasing and, you know, just getting out of control. Like, like you said, 75% increase in deforestation while Jair Bolsonaro was president. That's not going to change overnight. So what we mentioned when we talked about this last month was like, this looks great. We're really happy to hear this. This is an awesome, awesome start to Lula's presidency. But, and that's a big caveat, this does not mean that this fight to end deforestation is magically over or magically, you know, the, the tide has been turned. Yeah. It was good. And January was good. But that's not going to stop February from potentially being bad. And now we have to hope that March is another good month instead of another one that looks more like February. Yeah. It's wild to me that it's worst. It reached its worst ever February level. Like even when Bolsonaro was in office, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it never got this bad, which is crazy. But ultimately, you're right. Like you have to take every piece of good news with a grain of salt because like ultimately we're just not on the ground. Yeah. You know, like we're not we're not at the source we're not in brazil we don't have like our ears to the ground you know like in in what is going on there and like what what's going on with with the amazon we just have to assume at this point that january was a statistical anomaly and have stronger protections uh here in the future yeah and and i think this could also be a case of like it's never as bad as it seems, but it's also never as good as it seems. Yeah. You know, some of this might have gotten missed in January, like the article had mentioned. So maybe there wasn't as much of a decrease in deforestation in January. And maybe February isn't as bad as it seems because like some of this happened a month earlier. Either way, with the first two months of 2023, we are seeing that deforestation continues to be an issue and and needs to be stopped. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's get into our next story, which is no better than this one. And it's from CBC News, where Alexander Panetta writes, a suburb in Arizona lost its source of water. Residents warn we're only the beginning. So before we get into this one, I think going back and listening to Monday's interview with James Leitner is even more important now if you hadn't listened to it already. Um, James mentioned how water issues are going to become increasingly important moving forward, and here is an example of that. The drought in the western U.S. has seen municipalities ask residents to lower water consumption and for urban planners to reevaluate fountains, lawns, parks, you know, all of those things that are water intensive that it isn't always necessary to use that much water. On January 1st of this year, Scottsdale, Arizona, cut off transfers to the exurban community of Rio Verde foothills to conserve water for its own citizens. Drivers are now driving further distances and spending more time in their trucks to fill water tanks in the Phoenix suburbs. As the Colorado River shrinks due to climate change, people feel this is just the first of many communities that this could happen to. The article says that people are now showering at nearby gyms. Some eat on paper plates. They collect rainwater in outdoor buckets and use them to flush toilets. So definitely a completely different reality than what we are used to. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would say that collecting rainwater is generally a good practice regardless of drought conditions. Um, But now this is a necessity as part of the efforts to save the Colorado River. The Colorado provides drinking water, hydropower production, and water for crops. 
Since southwestern states missed a deadline to agree to water cutbacks, the federal government is expected to step in any day now to enforce water conservation rules. States are now fighting over water allocation, but so are urban and suburban citizens versus farmers. The Colorado River now produces 30% less water than expected, and people are using more, which is just a bad combination. When a treaty, now involving seven states and Mexico, was designed in 1922, it had been an abnormally rainy few years. The river was never going to provide the expected volumes that had been agreed upon 100 years ago. Yeah, and a good way to think of that is like, you are a parent and you have three children and you just got the best bonus you have ever gotten from work and you're like, this is what your allowance is going to be every single week for the rest of the year. And the first year goes fine because you still have that great bonus that you're, you know, relying on from work. And then next year you don't get as much of a bonus, but your kids still want the same allowance. Yeah. And then the year after that, your bonus is even less because, you know, for whatever reason, but your kids still want the same allowance. And in fact, you're now thinking of having another kid. So there's going to be more allowance to give out. It's that sort of situation just across multiple states and with millions of people being impacted. So it's it's not an easy problem to solve to begin with. Yeah. But then you pair that with the population boom that the Southwest is seeing, specifically in Vegas, L.A., San Diego, Phoenix. You know, this is just a really tough issue to solve. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you don't get a bonus and you just get a jelly of the month club membership. And that's, that's no good either. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a bad combination. Like you said, um, a lot of people moving there, it's becoming more and more popular, but yeah, I mean, this is going to be the new normal now, you know, like we're, we're going to be conscious going forward now of how much water we're using. How long of a shower are we taking? How long are we running our dishwasher for? Can we use the energy saver mode on it? If you have that, you know, like Mm -hmm. all these things are things we have to start thinking about and and doing in our everyday lives because we're going to get to our day zero. And I've talked about that on the show before, but that day zero where like there won't be any water left. Yeah. and, And what's important is that before we get to day zero, you know, taking precautions like you had said, where if everyone is cutting back on their water consumption a little bit. Right. It gives people it it gives the right people the time to find solutions and there's a ton a ton of research going into how we could use less water in you know very water intensive industries or how we can you know desalinate water for drinking better how we're going to get into a couple other solutions but like right there are ways to get by without using the same amount of water that we use every day and if we can cut back a little bit you know, in our day to day, maybe not watering your lawn, maybe not having a lawn. If you want to just go with native plants that aren't as water reliant, like there, there's ways to get by. Yeah. A hundred percent. So some potential solutions involve recycling dishwater or shower water for use in toilets, uh, a shift away from lawns towards desert landscaping and farmers changing their irrigation tactics. Another solution that I was really interested in that actually includes covering fields with solar panels So the panels themselves will provide shade for the crops and that's going to decrease their reliance on water because less is going to be evaporating. Also, that provides clean energy. So it's another win-win there. 
And one more solution that's brought up in the article that I wanted to talk about is extracting water from horse manure for industrial usage, which is great because if it's not drinking water, then what do we care if it comes from manure? You know, if that water is going to be used for cooling or that water is going to be used you know, as part of other industrial processes, who cares where it comes from? Like yeah. if it's from manure or it's from a fresh stream, it doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This article includes a quote that I want to close us out with. It's an old saying in the West that maybe inaccurately is attributed to Mark Twain. Whiskey is for drinking. Water is for fighting over. Well said, Mark, potentially. <laughs> but yeah, if that was you. <laughs> <laughs> if that was even you. Could have just been some random cowboy. Who knows? Agreed, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> our next story is titled Estimated Animal Death Toll from Ohio Train Derailment tops 43,700 as time frame for environmental recovery remains uncertain officials say by Lee Cohen of CBS News so first off we're going to keep this one kind of brief for full coverage of this event go check out our episode from February 17th um, just two weeks ago we talked a lot about the Norfolk Southern train derailment that impacted East Palestine Ohio um, disclaimer, we were also pronouncing East Palestine wrong uh, because we were reading it and I hadn't really been listening to a lot of stuff about it. But any, anyway, one of our main takeaways when we spoke two weeks ago was that the long-term effects of this are going to be bad, but we really won't know the true impact for a long time. One of the immediate developments has been an estimated 43,700 aquatic animals dying within a five-mile area of that Norfolk Southern train derailment. On February 3rd, when the train derailed, the Ohio EPA said that it was too dangerous to enter the nearby water without specialized gear. From February 6th to 7th, an environmental consultant group called EnviroScience collected samples and found almost 3,000 dead aquatic animals across four sites. They used this data to calculate the total death toll within the 7.5-mile area that was impacted by Norfolk Southern's derailment. The waterways impacted lead into the Ohio River, which could have major ramifications on the drinking water for millions of Americans. This immediate fallout, though, will likely impact local food chains due to the number of minnows that were lost. So, look, we are not going to know all of these effects for a while. But whichever way you look at it, this entire situation is just looking devastating. Yeah, it, it's it's a horrible situation. Um, like we said two weeks ago, it's unique. You know, we haven't really had something like this happen before. But to see the scale in which that it's done damage already is frightening because mm-hmm. this is only the beginning. You know, like this is only going to get worse. I can only imagine the headlines in the next come. You know, the next few months or even the next few years. So, you know, still a lot to be done here. Yeah, and and there's a lot of blame that could be pointed on, you know, the previous presidential administration cutting corners and and cutting costs by basically making the rail industry less safe. Um, Yep, warranted. Yeah, and you could point fingers at current administration not proactively reinstating some of those measures just yet. The, The main culprit to me either way is... In this scenario, Norfolk Southern, but just the greater rail industry in general, paying for lobbyists to say, you know, we don't need to care about safety because here's some money. 
<laughs> like this is what happens when you cut corners. You know, we we did the mm. fuck around part and now we're at the find out part. And unfortunately, like this is really bad. And look, I know everyone was concerned. Don't worry. Norfolk Southern, a $50.57 billion company, has donated $300,000 to East Palestine schools to make up for this. So, like, yeah, good on you. Great job. Uh, yeah. Great job, guys. Hands are clean. They did it. No, it's like this is, you know, that should be the first step. They should add a couple zeros onto that, and then they should double it and put that into the environmental cleanup. That's going to become increasingly important as these environmental fallouts continue to add up. Yeah, absolutely. Tough situation. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we got two more stories for you. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, U.S. corn-based ethanol, worse for climate than gasoline, study finds. A study published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science suggests that corn-based ethanol could be a larger contributor to global warming than straight gasoline, which contradicts previous research from the USDA. The research was funded in part by the National Wildlife Federation and the U.S. Department of Energy, and it found that ethanol is likely at least 24% more carbon intensive than gasoline due to emissions resulting from land use changes to grow corn, processing, and combustion. Jeff Cooper, CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, said that this is cherry-picked data and worst-case assumptions. The U.S. began mixing corn-based ethanol into gasoline in 2005 in an effort to reduce emissions, support farmers, and cut dependence on energy imports. This caused corn cultivation to grow by 8.7% as 6.9 million new acres of land were used for growing corn between 2008 and 2016. The article says that led to widespread changes in land use, including the tilling of cropland that would have otherwise been retired or enrolled in conservation programs and the planting of existing cropland with more corn. By tilling cropland, carbon that's stored in the soil is released. Another issue is that using fertilizers more to grow more corn also increased carbon emissions. So it seems like previous studies just looked at the emissions from burning gasoline versus burning gasoline with ethanol. 
this study looked at the production of those fuels as well. So this is a good example of like, when we find out new information, it's important to implement that new information. We, in 2005, decided that we were going to cut emissions from gasoline by adding in a natural product like ethanol, which is grown from corn. We are now finding out that maybe it wasn't as clean as we thought. And, you know, I I think the example that we're all probably thinking of for something like this is like when you talk to your parents or your grandparents or something, they're like, oh, they're always changing their minds on everything. Vitamins were good for you. Now they're bad for you. It's like, no, that's the point of science. This right here is the point of science. We test a new hypothesis and that leads us to a solution. And then we test the hypothesis based on that solution to make sure that as we move forward and as society progresses, that our technology, that our developments are still up to date. So I'm looking at, an article from Forbes and it is from 2014 and it's an opinion piece and it says it's final corn ethanol is of no use by James Conca and I just think it's so funny that this completely got like no press whatsoever yeah it's probably buried <laughs> completely buried and this guy James Conca is like literally 10 years it took you guys to figure this out I mean it's just unbelievable that, that we haven't, like, been definitive. Like, we can't just, like, take science and, like, immediately implement it. We have to go through a whole vetting process on, like, is it real? Is it factual? You know, all this stuff. It's like, how? is it? How does it go through all this, like, bureaucratic red tape before it actually, like, gets done? It's just insane to me. Yeah, and, and there's a reason for that. And a lot of the times that reason is good and saves lives, you know, like with with clinical trials for medicines. Yes. It's not something you could just bump right out. But, you know, I, I haven't read the article you're talking about, and maybe that's something that I should read before making this assumption. But what I'm going to say is like that data that he looked at from 2014, it's probably similar to the data that they looked at in 2023. But you need a round of testing and peer review and peer review is really the main thing because you need other people that are not impacted by whether or not your study gets published or they're not impacted financially in, in any way, shape or form by your study to come in and say, this is good science. This is good data. This followed the right protocols. That's why science takes so long. And that's why, you know, typically, scientific conclusions are, are very trustworthy <laughs> and yeah. when they're not it's because you know here's an example of we tested something a while ago and we found that burning gasoline with ethanol in it was reducing emissions that was true based on the the data that they were studying right but when you add in the entire life cycle of producing the ethanol that's now a new data set and that's where we realized like, hey, if you expand this study that we did years ago, well, maybe it's not as cut and dry as we thought. Yeah. And as a side note, I just have a, a beef with corn in general. It never gets digested in our systems. I don't know if anyone knew that. Um, we can't digest corn. <laughs> so in my opinion, why eat it? Um, as much as I love like a seafood corn chowder, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. Cornbread. Oh my God, I love it. Can't get enough. But I could do without it. I could do without corn in general. Get it off my plate. Stop growing so much. Counterpoint, it's good. 
<laughs> Let's stop growing so much for ethanol and maybe grow more for cornbread, cornbread muffins. I think there's just the enough. I just I think there's just enough corn in general, though. Like I just think there's so much corn. It's like you can't get enough. Like people love their agree, corn. Agree to disagree. I'm a I'm a big corn oh, guy. God, I, I don't need corn. I just don't need corn. <laughs> All right. Let's close this one out by saying that the EPA plans to propose 2023 requirements for the renewable fuel standards in May. So let's see if this new data leads to any changes. Yeah, for sure. We'll keep an eye on that. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from International Energy Agency, and it's titled, Methane Emissions Remain Stubbornly High in 2022, Even As Soaring Energy Prices Made Actions to Reduce Them Cheaper Than Ever. This article provides a link to the Global Methane Tracker for 2023, which is a really useful tool to hold polluters accountable. It also says that for the first time, the tracker includes the opportunities and costs to reduce emissions from coal supply. The tracker is made by the International Energy Agency, and it shows that the oil and gas sector could cut methane emissions by using an extremely insignificant amount of their profits. High energy prices, security of supply concerns, and economic uncertainty in 2022 did not drive down methane emissions. The global energy industry emitted 135 million tons of methane last year, which is slightly lower than 2019's record. The energy sector as a whole emits 40% of the world's total methane emissions, which is second only to agriculture. Methane is extremely potent, so even though it does not last in the atmosphere as long as something like carbon dioxide, it's responsible for 30% of the rise of global temperatures since the Industrial Revolution. Because it is so potent, but short-lived, cutting methane is one of the most effective ways to fight climate change and to improve air quality. This article says that less than 3% of the income generated by oil and gas companies last year alone could be used to finance the $100 billion investment required to cut methane emissions by 75%. Part of that investment would be to improve technology so that all non-emergency flaring and venting of methane is stopped. The IEA says that is the most impactful measure countries can take to rein in emissions. Roughly 260 billion cubic meters of methane is lost every year into the atmosphere. Better technology could retain up to 75% of that methane lost, which would amount to more than the EU's total annual gas imports from Russia before Russia invaded Ukraine. At COP26 in November 2021, the Global Methane Pledge showed the world that governments are aware of the methane issue and that they're going to work together to cut methane emissions. The goal is a 30% reduction by 2030, and the countries that have joined the pledge account for 55% of the world's total methane emissions created by human activity. Now it's just a matter of taking the pledge from a promise to a reality. My main takeaway here is, like we mentioned earlier, by using 3% of profits from last year, the fossil fuel industry could cut methane emissions by 75%. My other takeaway is that they're not going to do that unless governments make them. And the other thing for me is like, we have spoken about this every single time we talk about the fossil fuel industry, but like, we get it. We aren't going to be able to phase out oil and gas tomorrow. Yeah. So if we can't do that, 
then it makes sense for the oil and gas industry to say, yeah, we'll spend 3% of our profits to retain 75% of the methane that's that's created by us losing gas just into the atmosphere from our drilling. Yeah. Like it gives you more supply. <laughs> it, it wastes a, a lot less, 260 billion cubic meters less yeah. loss. You, you know what I mean? Like it's environmentally smart, but it's also financially smart. And even if we're saying like, hey, oil and gas, you're on the way out in 20 years, we're going to be strictly running on solar and wind and geothermal nuclear. But for right now, you'll be able to make more money if you stop wasting. Like, who's going to say no to that? Yeah, I think they just see 3% of profits and they're like, nope, yeah, no way, no shot. Like, yeah, we don't we don't need to do that because ultimately it's just it's money that they could be putting towards you know whatever starting new plants because they're they, CEOs and stock buybacks. That yeah, that too. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, they they think that they can just continue this road of like misinformation and you know prolonging the inevitable to to the point where you know whatever we're at like twenty fifty and they're still here and and still making just as much money. Yeah. That that might be like a reality for them. Like that might be something that they they see as something that could actually happen. Um, and in that case, they're not going to take three percent of their profits to reduce methane emissions by three fourths. I think the issue too, and this is why I said that. Like, look, they're not going to do this unless governments make them. The fossil fuel industry will profit off us failing to fight climate change, and that sucks to admit because you know you would think that like we're people first, we're not profits first, but in reality, like. You don't become an oil bigwig if you, you care about people over profits. No, that's not the industry that you become CEO or president of a company in if, if you care about people. So they will continue to make more money if all of our efforts do not work, and we say, you know what, screw it. We've already destroyed the planet. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. That's how they make the most money in thirty years. Yeah, and that sucks. Being completely shut out to the world around you and only caring about yourself. Yeah. Nice. Good stuff. Yeah. And look, that's why we have how many 190 something countries that attend the conference of parties every year. Like cop 27 had, I think 193. I don't know, but either way, like we need government leaders we need world leaders to be stronger than the oil and gas industry yeah 100 percent. all right that will do it for today's episode of tpt we're going to be back on monday for our monthly monday minisode but until then go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can follow our socials at planet today pod and you can send us an email at planet today pod at gmail.com you can also follow me on twitter at matt norden nick janusa produces our show and makes all of our music Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash no corn for life. <laughs> and go check out all my stuff, guys. Thank you. And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E if this is your first episode. <laughs> Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone. And we will catch you right here on Monday for some better news. Peace. Peace.